0: Rabbi Shimon Gamliel says, biri No human being treated his parents with respect as I did my parents. and then says Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, "I found out she the Then I found out that asav treated his parents with greater respect than I did my parents. Kate said, "What was that?" And then Rabbi Shimon Gamliel goes on to explain. When I would serve my father, I'd put on waiter's clothes. I'd put on dirty clothing to show my humility, to show how much I was subservient. Then naturally, when I was finished serving my father, I'd put on my nice clothing. And Esav did the exact opposite. The clothing that he wore all day, the clothing that he wore to affairs and events, those were not the clothing he wore to his father. His unique and special beged, his one beautiful cloak is what he saved for his father. Says Reb Shimon Gamaliel, From this I learned that I did not begin to come close to who Asav was in terms of Kibril aim And this Midrash is quite eye-opening because when we study the Parsha, we know the good guys and the bad guys. Yaakov is the Tzaddik, Esav is the Russia, And yet this Midrash is rather perplexing because here we have Rabbi Shimon Mugamalil saying that I did not come close to Esav in terms of honoring, respecting his parents. And just you understand what the Medrash is saying, the feitor explains that this man, Shimon Gamaliel, worked on this mitzvah. This was his mitzvah. And he studied everything that he could find, all the stories, all the events. And if you read through Chazal, you'll see incredible ex- exhibitions of treating parents with honor, with accord. One tana would always step by the bed so his mother could step down on his back to get to the floor. Another tana, when they were walking, his mother... She tore her sandal. He put his hand under her foot. Her foot shouldn't touch the sand. You see incredible exhibitions of honoring one's parents. Says Ram Shim Gamalil, I studied all of them, and no one reached my level. I far exceeded all of them in Kiber Avaim. This was his mitzvah, and in all humility he said it, and yet what I saw from Esau showed me that I wasn't one hundredth. If a used that expression, I wasn't one hundredth, of Asav in Kibir Va'im. And to understand how it is that Rameshim Ram Gamaliel understood this, let's sort of pay attention to the storyline of told us a little bit, and let's understand where he knows this from and what in fact was the Kibbut Av of Asav. So as the story begins, <clears throat> Yitzhak is already elderly, Kizokain, he was old, Vatikhan Einav, his eyes became weak. And here we have the entire story where Yaakov takes the blessing from Esav. Yitzhak calls Esav in, and he says to Esav, I'm old, I don't know when my time of death is coming. I want you to go into the fields. Go find me a something to eat. <clears throat> when you'll bring it back, as Esforna explains, that enjoyment that I'll have will give me more nachas ruach, I'll give you the brach with greater kavanah. He sends Esav out hunting. Go, bring me back an animal to eat. Prepare me a meal. Rivka overhears the conversation. She quickly calls in Yaakov and says, "Listen to me, and do exactly as I say. Go to the sheep, and take a sheep. Put it on your hands, and then she says these words, and take, v'tikach Rivka's big day bin al and Rivka took the begodim of Esav, her oldest son, hachamudas, the coveted, the beloved ones, a that was with with her. You see, Yaakov's fear was that his father would find out that he's not Esav. And he said to his mother, listen, Esav is hairy and I'm smooth. That part Rivka took care of right away. She said, go shecht in a, one of the sheep. and <clears throat> We'll put the hair on your hands, on the back of your neck and that way you'll fill, As- fill Yaakov, you'll fill Yitzhak, and he'll think it's Esav. But there was one more step. Whenever Esav would serve his father, which apparently was often, he would wear his day chamudos, his coveted garments. And if Yaakov went into his father without wearing these coveted garments, immediately Yitzhak would know it's not Esav. And therefore Rivka gave those garments to Yaakov. Rashi is bothered by how did... She have them. This is not her. These are not kids anymore. Meaning, they're at the age of about sixty-three at this point. Yaakov and Esav no longer live at home, and Rashi explains that he didn't trust his wives. Esav had many wives. He didn't trust them. These were his precious garments. He knew their antics, and he only trusted his mother to safeguard them. He kept them in that house and only wore them when he served his father. These were the big day chamudos. And these begodim were relegated specifically to serve his father. But a little bit more background, just so we can understand exactly what's going on. How did Esav get these big chamodos, and what were they? So the Daza explains to us that when Hashem threw Odom out of Gan Eden, Hashem made a very specific begot for him. Hashem made this incredibly beautiful cloak made of some type of leather, with the pictures of all the various animals in creation drawn upon it, and it was magnificent and it had an incredible art to it. It had an, an illustrious sense about it. And not only was it just magnificent and beautiful the handcraft of Akarish Barhu, but all of the animals would see their <clears throat> type in this Beged, and they'd come running over and they'd come to the person owning it. Adamarishan had this Beged. Adamarishan gave it over to Noach. Noach took it on the Teva. Nimrod ended up getting a hold of these Begodim. Nimrod was a Gibor tsaid, a great hunter. He would go into the woods, and immediately all the various animals would come because they'd see this Beged, this long cloak with the pictures of the animals on it. They were so attracted, they would immediately become subservient. He was a Gibor tsaid caught them easily because it was no big deal to catch them. Now, the question is, how did Asef get them? So Rashi explains to us that Asav comes back from the field Ayyaf. Many years before this point, Asav comes home Ayyaf, and Adasakanim explains to us he was Ayef me murder. He had seen these begodim on Nimrod, and he coveted these begodim. He desperately wanted these begadim and he knew that the only way he could get them was if Nimrod was no longer around to protest. So Esav arranged that to be. Esav killed Nimrod for these begadim and these were his precious garment that he literally killed a man for. And as a matter of fact, if you'd like to understand what that day was, the beginning of the Parsha has this whole event where Yaakov is cooking a dashum, cooking some kind of lentils, and if you look in the Rishonim, they explained what actually was going on. And you see, at that point, Asev and Yaakov were 15 years of age. And if it could be, Hashem had a problem. The problem was that Hashem promised Avram that Bisevah Tova, with a good grace, he would leave this earth. But now that Asav was 15, it no longer could be Bisevah Tova. Asav of Russia came out of his shell. And when he was 10, 11, you could hide him. 13 even, maybe, he was still B'tzina. Now he was a full, mature 15-year-old. There was no hiding it. Avram Avinu was supposed to live to be 180. But Hashem shortened his days. He only lived to 175. Five years earlier, Avram Avinu had to leave this earth. Why? Because Hashem promised him he'd leave in good grace. But his grandson, Asa, was now 15 and to have such a grandson in existence was not a sevatova, And if it could be Hashem, took Avram five years earlier. When Yaakov is cooking the adoshim, it's because his father Yitzchak is in mourning for his father Avraham. Asaf comes back from the Sada Ayyaf. What was he tired from? Ritzich, it was that day that he killed Nimrod. But it wasn't just that day that he killed Nimrod. The Medrash tells us that day he did a few other fine acts. He lived with a married woman. He was Kofor Betchias Amesim, for Bashem. He denied everything. He did five major Averas on that one day, because that was his maturation point. He turned to evil, and at that point there was no holding him back. When he bargained with Yaakov for the lentil soup, he was Ayev almost death death knell because he was so tired from that war, from that mortal combat. And at that point he sold the Bechorah to Yaakov. Now, it's very important to recognize what we're speaking about over here. We're talking about a man who just killed another human being for these Begadim. We're talking about a man who at 15 years of age denies Hashem, denies T'chiyas denies the Torah, denies everything. There's no alam Haba. What does he do with these big day chamudas, these coveted garments, and this garment that he so lusted, so desired that he literally ended Nimrod's life, what does he do with it? He puts it aside and only uses it to serve his father. But you see, that event, when Yaakov and Esav were vying for the... Bracha was years and years later. Esav killed Nimrod at 15 years of age. They're 63 when the debate about who's going to get the bracha happens. When Yaakov fools Esav and puts on the big day chamudos and goes into Yitzhak, he's 63 years of age. Which means for decades this coveted garment stayed in Rivka's house. It remained there because it was only appropriate to serve his father that way. What Rabbi Shimon Gamliel learned from that Pusuk was something astonishing. As much as he worked on Kibit av, as much as he focused on it, he didn't reach the toenails of Asav. Asav coveted this garment to such an extent that he literally killed a man for it. But he wouldn't use it. He wouldn't wear it to the shuk. He wouldn't wear it when he went about things. He only wore it for this mitzvah called Kibit av, when he would serve his father, when he'd bring his father food, and he'd stand over his father like a waiter. That's when he'd wear these big chumudos They stayed in his mother's house. He didn't trust anyone else with them. They were too precious. They remained relegated specifically for this mitzvah. Says Rame when I saw this, I realized I'm nobody. Whatever honor I treat my father with, is nothing compared to the honor that Esau treated Yitzhak with. And this is quite an interesting medrash. However, it begs the question. And that is, one second, Esau. There's no world to come. There's no Tzchismesim. There's no God. There's no Torah. What in the world is your mitzvah of Kibber There's no mitzvahs. There's no Torah. And yet you're so careful that your most precious garment, you only wear then, you might stain it, you might... I don't care. I'm not going to wear it. No one else can see it. No one, to my father, to honor my father, that's when I put my special begad. There are no mitzvahs. There's no Torah. And the question, I guess, begs being asked, is that Kibbutz Av? Why? Why would he do this? And if you'd like to know how real Asev's Kibitav is, let's just focus on what happens here. Yitzhak gives the bracha. He's fooled by Yaakov. He says the words are Daimy the but he fools, he's fooled and he assumes the fact that it's Aesov and he gives the bracha to Yaakov. No sooner does Yaakov leave than Aesov comes in. And Esau finds out that he's been duped. And Esau is furious. And the Apostle says he hates Yaakov because of it. And he hates him with a burning, passionate hatred. And he says to himself these words, When will the day come that my father dies? When will the day come that my father dies? And then I'm going to kill my brother. But if you look at Rashi, Rashi is very clear. I can't do it before because I can't cause my father tsar. Do you understand what Kiberav is? The man hates his brother with a passion. Wants to murder him and call, wants to kill him immediately. I can't. It's going to cause my father pain. So here is the question: If there's no world to come, no God, no Torah, what is the mitzvah? Why are you doing What do you? Wear the beggar wherever you want. Kill your brother. What do you care? There are no mitzvahs. And I'd like to see if we can understand exactly why it is that asaph kept this mitzvah. And to understand the answer to that, I'd like to share with you a parable that I used to share with my high school students when I was a high school Rebbe. I would say to them as follows. I want you to imagine for a minute, you come back to your dorm room, and on your bed you find a gift. It's a beautiful iPod. I mean, it's beautiful. The newest model, and, it, and it's gorgeous. And next to it you find a card. And it's from two of your friends. And they say, dear Shmuel, we thought you could use this, hear from us. Wow! That is so sweet. And you'd be overcome with, wow, that's incredible generosity. That you'd be like so moved, and you'd feel such appreciation to your friends for buying you an expensive gift like that. And then I would say to these fellows, gentlemen, do any of you guys have any electronics? Do any of you guys have any clothing? Do any of you guys go to school? Well, you're in yeshiva, right? Uh, I have a little question. Is that free? Who pays the tuition? Whose house do you live in? Whose food do you eat? And I would spend an incredible amount of time trying to get across to these young men the fact that their parents spend incredible amounts of money, time, resources, energy, love, in terms of developing them. And I'd like to share with you that this is not a small thing. Human beings have rather curious memories, but every one of us is the recipient of so much good that it's beyond description. I remember as a little boy when my ninth birthday came around and I wanted a James Bond ate case. This was the ate case to end all ate This was the ultimate spy thing. It even had a missile that it shot out of the briefcase. And I asked my parents for it. And the day and my birthday, I'm hunting up. I knew my father bought it. I knew it was in house. I couldn't find it. I'm looking here, there. I couldn't find it. Finally, he comes home, and he shows me where were hit it. And I was extraordinarily... First, I was sad. I couldn't find it. But I was extremely... I can't describe the joy, the happiness when I showed my friends and I played with it. But here's the point. Every one of us have had birthdays. Every one of us know how to read. Today, in the United States of America, it's a given you know how to read. But you go to the UNICEF site, and you'll find out that there are 275 million children around the world who don't know how to read. They don't know how to write. They don't learn how to add. The gifts that we take as given, the things that we take as, of course, aren't so simple. And a simple reality is that I know how to read Because my mother, Allah Shalom, sat on the floor with me and taught me olive bays. I know how to add because my father sat with me. I went to school and I had clothing. And if you think about the amount of good that we as children received, it's incredible. The U.S. Department of Agriculture estimates that if you bring a child up today from birth till age 18, it will cost you at least $250,000. However, I'd like to share with you, the Department of Agriculture is figuring out the cost of raising a kid out in Idaho. He's not talking about raising a kid in our lifestyle. He's not talking about yeshiva tuitions at ten, fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 a year. He's not talking about day camp and sleepaway camp. They're not discussing bar and mitzvahs, they're not discussing seminary or college or yeshiva or weddings. If you'd like to know the cost of raising a child today, from birth until you're done as a parent, a million dollars is easy to spend. One million dollars, and I would sit there telling these guys—they were 16, 17 years old—I would tell them over and over the debt of gratitude that you have to your parents is astonishing, beyond description. You can never pay them back, never, ever, in begin to appreciate it, and more than anything. What is it that your parents are seeking? You can't pay them back financially. You're not going to be their support in the future. There's only one thing that they're looking for. It's something called nachas. What does nachas mean? They want you to succeed. They want you to do well. They want the best for you. They're giving and giving financially and resources and love and attention and everything with one goal and one goal only, and that is... For you to succeed, for you to be a mensch, for you to grow, for your success. If you ever want to look at a one sided relationship, that is it. The parents give, 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 give. And the interesting part is that most of the time, the children don't even recognize that they receive, 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 receive. I once had a 17 year old. He asked me an Aitzah, asked me advice on a certain issue. And I said, Well, I think you should do this and this. He said, Mm-mm, I don't want to do that. Why not? I don't want to be, holden, be beholden to my father. I don't want to owe my father anything. I want to grab the guy by his shirt collars. You're 17 years old, and whose bed did you sleep? Whose house did you grow up in? Who pays your yeshiva tuition? You don't want to be beholden to your father. You're 17 years too late. And as Sefer Hinoch explains, that the mitzvah kibir aim is something that we should do without any mitzvah whatsoever. It's humanistic, it's natural, it's instinctual. And the minute I realize I'm the recipient of so much good, Hashem, what you've showered me with, my parents, look what you've given to me. When I sit, focus, and realize that, instantly, explains the Sefer I should want to pay back the good, and he explains that the mitzah of Kibbut Av doesn't need a commandment, it's humanistic, it's natural, it's instinctual. And if you'd like to understand Aes I think that's exactly the shot. There's no Torah, no Triasim Aesim, no God. Doesn't exist. But my goodness, my parents, look what they've done for me. They help me and they show me good and they love me and they take care of me. How could how could I not pay them back? How can I not stand there like a waiter wearing my best clothing? How can I not worry? How, how can I cause my father tsar? I want to kill Yaakov. I can't do it. Why? I can't cause my father tsar. Aesov was a gangster. Aesov was Aes of Russia. But he had a human heart, and that human heart felt appreciation, and that appreciation said to him, "I gotta pay. I, 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 I can't cause them harm. I have to pay them back, honor, and anything I can do." And if you would like to fundamentally understand what this Chazal is sharing with us, it really is quite simple. Asev had a huge neshama. Chazal tell us that Asev could have been one of the Avos. He could have been up there with Yaakov. He turned south, and he didn't. But that was the kind of neshama he had. And when the neshama that he had was so moved, he saw what his parents did for him. He saw the love, the care, the affection. And he felt such a sense of appreciation. Forget the Torah, forget God, forget the world to come. How could I not pay them back? How can I not do whatever I can? And he felt such a huge desire to honor them. That he did something that Rav and Gamaliel couldn't even imagine doing, and I find many, many important lessons from this medrash. Let's start with one obvious one. You ever hear someone say, "Hmm, I don't know if I believe in the soul. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I believe in in a soul. I don't believe it. <clears throat> believe it. Anything good that the human ever aspired to." Anything good that the human ever dreamt about doing and anything good that the human ever pursued was only because you have a neshama. Because you have a soul that Hashem imprinted, that Hashem created with all of the desire to do what's right, what's good, what's noble, what's proper. And if you want to see that, look at Asaf. Esav. Esav had such a desire, look at what he did. Look at the honor he treated his parents with. He made anyone else in history pale in comparison. And that is a neshama. He could lie, he could steal, he could cheat, he could murder for a man's leather jacket. That's okay. But my parents... hmm. And again, if you'd like to see a classic example of a neshama, just look at any human being who ever desires to do something good. And people are very funny. They could be wicked and evil in many ways but they have a certain agenda, and suddenly that agenda is pure and holy, and they really do great things. And that's an important lesson to learn, but I think there's a lot more. Let's focus on one very important point. And let's ask the question. We have a Yaakov, we have an Asav, and we have two parents, Yitzhak and Rivka. Yaakov comes this great tzaddik. Asav heads south. Where did Yitzhak and Rivka go wrong? Let's sort of, let's be honest. Let's trace the mistake. Let's find their error. And let's see where in their parenting, where in the upbringing of Esav did they make the mistake that made Esav turn the way he did. Get the joke? The joke is, they did nothing wrong. You will not find a Rishon who says, (laughs) Chot Yitzhak Avinu, Chot Rivka Imenu. They don't say that. You know what they do say? Something very different. And that is that Yaakov had free will and Asav had free will. And they both had the most incredible upbringing. And don't tell me Asav was abused as a child. You don't love your parents that way. You don't treat them with honor and respect when you're a gangster unless they really treated you with very, very special kid gloves. And his parents did a beautiful job of bringing him up. And his parents gave him every opportunity. But there is something in the world called free will. And Bekhira means at the end of the day, <clears> of <throat> hit 15 and he turned Latar Bezra. Really a 13, but it wasn't recognizable for the world to see until 15 because that was his nature, that's who he was, and that was his decision. And I believe that this shares with us a very fundamental concept. You ever find good parents, and have one kid is good, another kid, and then a third kid turns bad. Where did the parents go wrong? Now, sometimes it is true. It is true that sometimes parents make mistakes. But not always. And I'd like to share with you the vast majority of the time, I don't believe the parents did anything wrong. I've seen many, many situations, <clears throat> the children were all brought up well, and one child does phenomenally well, and the other child heads south. How could it be? Obviously the parents did something wrong. Obviously they didn't parent him properly. Had they really brought him up the Torah way, he would have been a tzaddik just like his brother learning in Kollel today. Yeah, sort of like Esau should have learned in Kollel, just like Yaakov did. There is something in the world called Bechira, and it's like we forget about it. It's almost like, uh, obviously, the parents uh, did something. So I want to share with you the great Kiddush that you have to really open your ears to hear. And that is that bringing up children is not mind-molding. It's not brainwashing. It doesn't take a child and take away his free will and say, you shall be shackled to the version of what I want you to be. It doesn't work that way. And by the way, it's not even always true that the child is supposed to go in the parent's way. The child is always supposed to be a Torah Observant Jew, supposed to be show mitzvahs, yes, but not always the style, not always the way. And children have free will. Certainly, when they hit an age of maturity, certainly when they hit an age where their decisions are their decisions. And the simple reality is that Ace have had free will. Could Yaakov have done something differently? Could Yitzhak had <clears throat> somehow maybe? But you don't see Chazal blame Rivka. You don't see them blame Yitzhak. Esav is responsible for who he became. He was not abused, didn't suffer trauma. He became who he was because those are his choices. And I'm not speaking against the simple reality that there are unfortunately many times that children are Rahman, abused or the trauma. Or well, there are some rare situations where parents are really bad parents. But for as many cases as you'll find that way, I'll find you far more where the child says he or she is abused. The child has a version of being so disadvantaged. But you study the history and you look through the events and you see it didn't quite add up to what they're describing. And at the end of the day, it is very rough if you're not living up to what your parents' ideals are. And it's very rough if you're not living up to what you know your community expects of you, but every human being has free will, and when you make those decisions, you are the one to be responsible for it, and you're held accountable. But I believe there's a lot more for us to learn from this. And let's focus on the key question. If Esau had such a holy neshama, such a pure neshama that he literally would do anything he could to honor his parents, and he could have been the equivalent of the others. He could have been like Yaakov. And he was brought up in such a perfect home. A mother like Rivka. A father like Yitzhak. What went wrong? So if you'd like to know what went wrong, I'll share with you an interesting observation. I was a little boy, and I don't remember if it was a novel or it was an old western, but I remember very clearly that the English fellow came over to America And he went to the ranch, and he found the ranch hand, and he said to the ranch hand, is your master around? In British language, the master referring to your boss, is your master around? And the cowboy put both of his hands on his hips and says, the son of a gun ain't been born yet. And in American culture, we're very comfortable with that idea that ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. Ain't nobody my master. If you'd like to understand why Asa rebelled, it's really quite simple. Judaism has a flaw. The flaw is, if I accept as Hashem, and I accept Hashem created me, and I understand that Hashem is present and runs the world, then I also understand that I'm not the boss. I'm not in charge. I have a creator. I have a master. And you have to understand something. The neshama the great part of human is very uncomfortable with that. As much as I cling to my Creator, as much as I want to be close to Hashem, and as much as I see Hashem and recognize the greatness of Hashem and de- therefore desire nothing but being close, Hashem created the Neshama so great that the Neshama wants to be a master. and wants to elevate itself, wants to become greater and greater, bigger and bigger. And the bigger the Neshama is the more difficult it is to make itself subservient to anything, even Hashem. And if you'd like to understand Asif, it's really quite simple. I don't want no master. I'm uncomfortable with the idea of Hashem saying, do this or don't do that. But Asif, it's for your good. And Asif, you know that ultimately it's your world to come. And ultimately you know that who you'll be for eternity. I can't accept it. And within every human being there is this steer, this contradiction recognizing Hashem, deeply wanting a connection, but being uncomfortable with that understanding. Because that understanding means that my Creator created me, runs the world, and is in charge. Tells me things to do and things not to do. and <clears throat> Says what I should do at what time and what way, and tells me what not to do. And that's something that's a little bit uncomfortable. And here's the great problem. How do you take a neshama so pure and holy, that sees Hashem, that knows Hashem, but wants its freedom, but you can't deny reality. You can't deny that Hashem is there. If Esav has a neshama that's so pure that it could be one of the others, he knows that Hashem is right here. And he knows that Hashem runs the world far more clearly than you and I do. So how could he deny? And this is the great secret of Bechirah. When Hashem created the human and gave us free will, it wasn't just free will to do this or to that. We never would have real free will. Free will requires something called imagination. You see, imagination is this capacity that Hashem gave us to imagine things and on some level to believe them to be real. And we human beings have this capacity to envision things, to imagine things, and to really feel them. You read a book. And suddenly you're a pirate on the seven seas and it feels real. You read a story and you're crying. Why are you crying? Because you're in the story and it feels real. Imagination is a power that Hashem gave us. The main function of imagination is it allows for free will. You see, free will requires me to be able to have the ability to do this or not do that. And free will means that Esav has to be able to deny Hashem. Because Hashem is so clear, so obvious. His neshama is so pure, and he came from under the kiss How could he deny it? I don't want it to be. I don't accept it. There's no Torah, no God, no tziches He denies the whole thing. And this human being, as great as he could have been, and as great as he was in one element, lived in a world of delusion, fooled himself, tricked himself because of that contradiction, and that is the human being. And if you say to me, come on, it can't be. How could you know something so clearly? How could you see it right there and absolutely deny it? I'll bring you back to my high school sheer. 45 minutes of on and on what your parents do for you, what your parents do for you, whose bed you sleep in, who paid your tuition, who put the band-aids on when you were crying, on and on after 45 minutes a fellow comes over and says, Rebbe, I get it, I get it. Okay, 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 okay. I owe my parents. But but that's their job. They have to do that. When they decided to have me, now they have to do these things because that's the job of a parent. And I said to a young man, your parents have a job and you have a job. As a parent, your responsibility is to do your best for the child. To look at that child and say, what is the nature of the child? What is that diamond that I can... Help bring out, and your job as a parent is to do everything you can for the good of the child. Nevertheless, you as the child are the recipient of unimaginable good. You received and received, received and received, and continued to receive, and all that your parents want from you is what's good for you. And if you'd like to see the most incredible, incredible state of the human mind, just look at the typical 16, 17 year old boy, girls aren't that much better. The sense of I don't owe my parents anything. And the sense that I, what do I owe them? If they do something, maybe. And as strange as it sounds, yeah, they're respectful as long as mom and dad don't push the envelope, as long as they don't push too far. And it's incredible to see. There was a time, I know a man, this was 40 years ago, when he said to me, at the time he was 80. He grew up in the 1910, 19, maybe early 20s in New York City. He said when his father opened his mouth, he didn't dare. No one at the table did utter a word. There was such an awe, such a respect. You didn't dare speak back to your parents. No one did. It's not the world we live in. Ah, what are all my parents? What are all my parents? And good kids. I'm not talking about bad kids. I'm not talking about street kids. I'm talking about from kids from the best homes. They try to be careful, they try. Don't push it, Ma. Don't push it, Dad. And it's astonishing. The human heart should scream out, what could I ever do to repay you? And <clears throat> What could I ever do? All that I am, the fact that I exist, the fact that I'm alive, <clears throat> the fact that I'm here, and everything that I am, and everything that I be- is only because of you. But it's like it didn't happen. And if you'd like to see the human being rewrite history, there's no debt, I don't owe anything. I don't want to say this or do this because then I'll be beholden to my father. I don't want to owe my father anything. You don't want to owe your father anything? What do those words mean? What they mean is I've rewritten history. I owe him nothing to this point, And I don't want to do X because if I do X then I'll owe him. And I don't want that. Uh-huh. I don't want to owe him anything. And if we didn't see Asif doing it, we'd say it's impossible. And if we didn't see human beings in our world doing it, we'd say it's impossible. But it happens all the time. And I'd like to share with you that there's one more application that might be equally as important. For most of us, we're not teenagers anymore. And hopefully, we've worked things out. And if your parents are still around, it's a big bracha. And you have to spend time thinking and contemplating and realizing how much they did for you, and you have to work on appreciation and honoring them. But there are other applications of this concept that are maybe as basic. The Chavez explains to us that one of the driving forces in all of our avodas Hashem should be an unbridled sense of, Hashem, what could I ever do to repay you for this gift of life? What could I ever do to repay you for this gift of hands and eyes, mobility, sense of hearing? Everything that I have, everything that I experience, everything that I've gotten up to now. Taste and aroma and fragrance and living and just being alive. Hashem, what could I ever do to repay you? Here's the question. How common is that sense? And now maybe you'll tell me it's because we suffer. Because we don't have Because we're deprived. People that you and I know today are not deprived. But one thing that is lacking is a certain semblance of reality and a certain inventory, taking stock and realizing that I am the recipient of so much good. I am the recipient again and again and again from my parents, from Hashem. I am constantly receiving to an extent that's hard to imagine. And if I spent my life trying to appreciate what my parents do for me, I couldn't, but how much more so what my Creator does for me. But the problem is that it requires work. But why does it require work? Because in a flash of an eye, we can rewrite history. In a flash of an eye, we could rewrite 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of receiving and make it like it's not there. And I'd like to share with you one more application. Do you ever see a husband get angry at his wife? you ever see a daughter-in-law get angry at her mother-in-law? It doesn't matter what that person received up to then. When I'm angry, everything flies out the window. I don't owe them anything. I don't owe them a thing. And if you're not sure that I'm right, just watch a couple when they fight. And I have a little and bias tool that I share with couples all the time. And that is, you have to take a 3x5 index card. And on this index card, you have to write down what it is that your spouse does for you. And it's easy to see from the husband's perspective. If a husband thinks about what his wife does for him on a daily basis, I always love this one. I say to the guys, gentlemen, this morning you opened the sock drawer and you pulled out a fresh pair of socks. Smells nice, beautiful, downy, fresh. That same pair of socks last week was smelly, filthy, odorous. How did it suddenly get so nicely cleaned, freshly fluffed, folded so neatly in your sock drawer? Were there some elves, maybe some magic? If a husband thinks about what his wife does on a regular basis, that means food and take care of the house and take care of the children and take care of clothing and take care of everything in his life, the unbridled sense of a would fill him with a sense of what could I ever do to repay you? And women as well. If your husband takes care of the house and he takes care of the bills and the finances and whatever he does, there should be an unbridled sense of appreciation. And the problem that we human beings have is that we have this uncanny ability to forget, whatever, that's my husband's job, that's my wife's supposed to do of course she does the socks and the laundry and the food, that's her job. And if you don't work on it, it's not real, you don't feel it. And I think this Chazal shares with us a tremendous yesod. Ace of HaRusha was so wicked, but he had a lofty neshama. And that neshama recognized what his parents did for him, and it was such a sense of, what could I ever do to repay you? these big day chamudas, he only kept in his mother's house. Why? And because he had to serve his father with the best, the finest. Who would see? Who would know? My father would know. And these begotten that he killed for, that was the of that Esav felt, even though asif was a rasha, a heinous criminal, a murderer. It didn't matter. It had a pure neshama, and the neshama manifests itself, and the contradiction in the human is exactly that. And the neshama that's so pure that says, how could I not pay back? Yet Hashem gave us a thing called free will. <clears throat> what causes that is this ability to rewrite entire fanciful events, rewrite history. We're able to believe exactly what we want to believe. asaph didn't want to accept the master. <clears throat> Too lofty and neshama can't accept someone above him. And therefore he had to deny Hashem. But he had the capacity to just say, Nope, Hashem doesn't exist. What do you mean Hashem does? how did the world come into being? <clears throat> you saw it, you were how did all just lucky roll of the cosmic dice. And this thing called free will is predicated on <clears throat> this ability to be imaginative, and it's something that's given to the human because that's what allows for free will. And when you see two children, sometimes it's true that the parents didn't do as good a job as they could have. And sometimes it's true that there was things that went on. Maybe abuse, maybe things happened. And sometimes it's quite plain and simple. There's something called free will. There was a Yaakov and there was an Esav. that each could have been, one became, and the other one didn't. <clears throat> but for our purposes now, the understanding is that I have to focus on appreciation. I have to focus on what I receive. It may be true that my parents' job as parents is to give, but I'm the recipient. And have to think about that, have to dwell on it, have to take stock, and have to write it down and really think about it. And it's very kedai to do the math. Sit down with an Excel spreadsheet and add up all of the clothing that you had since you were a little kid. Add up the shoes and the camps you went to and the yeshiva tuition and start putting some numbers into that spreadsheet. And then when you get way, way above hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, you're way short. And when you begin to realize that everything that your parents did for you was for one purpose, they wanted what was better. But they could have done it better. They should have done it better. They should have. He- I don't know where it says that in Torah. I do know the Sefer HaChinach says, if a father brings a child into the world, the father's obligated to keep it off. Why? Because you exist because of your father, because of your mother. But it's much more than existence. None of us were left on the doorstep. You go to China today. You'll find 58 million children whose parents have left them. They live in the mountain areas and they can't get jobs out there. They leave the child sometimes with a grandparent, sometimes not. 58 million children in China today don't have parents. But that wasn't you and I. <clears throat> parents who taught us, who worked with us, did everything they could. Not the way I wanted. Not the way they should have. They, they she didn't. She wasn't sensitive. My father wasn't. I know. <clears throat> I hear if you think about the good that you received, if you think about what you are constantly receiving and getting, there'll be a sense of unbridled appreciation, unbridled sense of what could I do to pay back, and again our ability to rewrite history, to forget what we received, forget what we received from our parents, we forget what we received from Hashem, we forget what we received from our spouses, and these are the things that require work. The work is just to separate myself from the events, just to take a walk And think. Think about what I receive. Think about what I constantly get. Take stock and remember. And you think it again and again, and you write it down. And you review it, and you review it. And when you think about it for five minutes a day, ten minutes a day, for a few weeks, a few months, you have a sense of, wow! And you know what else happens? Not only do you have a sense of a karasatov that I owe somebody, for the first time in your life, you might just actually have the great gift that you have. You see, one of the strange things about being gifted is if you don't focus on it, you don't even know. How many times does a person live through life, doesn't think about the fact that his fingers or hands or eyes, and then something happens. As soon as it happens, Hashem, why me? Why me of the seven and a half billion people on the planet? Why me? Until that time, there wasn't even a thought. There wasn't even a casual thank you. But not just wasn't there a thank you, there wasn't even a recognition of it being a gift. When you open your eyes in the morning, you're supposed to say, But it's supposed to be with an outpouring of emotion. I'm supposed to take stock. It didn't have to be that I was sighted. There are many people who don't have the gift of sight. But Hashem gifted me with this. That's astonishing, wow. I have wealth. I have tremendous thing called this gift of sight. And I have perfect hearing. I can hear music, sounds, distant and close. Wow! I have mobility. I have a sense of touch. You see, if you stop and think about these things, and if you stop and contemplate, you become wealthy. You become so phenomenally gifted. Naturally, there's a sense of appreciation, but it's a sense of appreciation because I have. If I have, I was given. If I was given, I, I have to pay back. But you see, if you don't stop and think about it, It's not just that you don't want to pay back. You don't even have it. You might as well not have been gifted it. And if you want to improve your life, if you want to be happy, I have to stop and think how much I received, how much I'm given. And if you'd like to see the ultimate example of this, just find me a wildly successful rock star. The wildly successful rock star. He went from rags to riches overnight. And he's the most miserable creature on the face of the planet. But why? He's got everything, fame and fortune and everything that money can buy. And he's constantly drugging himself out of a state of existence. Why? Because life means nothing. There's no joy, there's no happiness, there's no meaning. But there's never a focus on what I've enjoyed. And the reason why he'll wreck a hotel room or a car or whatever it is, is because there's nothing that I have. I'm not the recipient of anything. And if you don't train yourself to recognize what I was gifted, if you don't train yourself to see the tremendous bracha that I have, you live a very poor life. I think this chazal shares with us a tremendous concept, and that concept is that you can receive and receive, and naturally there should be a sense of wanting to give back, and that's the mitzvah of kibud aim. That's what Ace have reached. It's humanistic, it's natural, but we're also given the ability to ignore it, also given the ability to totally whitewash it to ignore it totally, and you have to work on that. And I want to close with one last observation. I heard my Rebbe, the Rosh ask a very penetrating question on this Chazal. Rosh Hashem felt that he was the master in Kibbut He studied everything, and he didn't find a human being who reached his level of Kibbut until he reads about and Big De Chamudos, the coveted garments, and he says, oh my goodness, I didn't reach a hundredth of Esav. Here's the question. Why didn't Shimon Gamaliel then do what Esav did? Shimon Gamaliel said, look at Esav. He took his most precious garment. What do I, I do the exact opposite. <clears throat> I wear my dirty clothing. I would never wear my clean clothing. <clears throat> I wear my dirty clothing to serve my, my father. And Esav wore his best clothing. So why didn't Shimon Gamaliel from that moment on do exactly what Esav did? He, now he learned the right way. The right way is you wear your fine garments. The right way is you go in that way. And my Rebbe Rav Sheva answered by saying that Rav Sheva understood that that was the higher level, but Rav Sheva was afraid. You see, what if he serves his father wearing his finest garments, and he spills and is stained, and there's, there's a little bit of upset, there's a little bit of, <clears throat> that would, anger would be so dishonorable to his father, he couldn't risk it. He might get ticked, he might get angry. Look at him, spoiled my beggar. Father, you, spit, you spilled it on me. Oh. That anger was too dangerous and he couldn't risk it. He couldn't afford the risk that maybe he'd get ticked at his father for spilling on his fine begotten was too risky. He couldn't take the risk. So here's the question. How did Asif take the risk then? If Asif is the ultimate master in Kibrav, he would never take a risk. Answered the Reshiva, because Asif knew himself. There's no way in the world he would utter a word. His finest begotten could get destroyed, ruined by his father. I'm not saying anything. My father? My father? My father? I should say something. My father? This is Ace of Arusha, the wicked, heinous, and take the worst imaginable criminal, take Al Capone 20 times over. And Ace of believe me, has him in his back pocket. But he wouldn't dare say something against his father. <clears throat> if I spilled, ruined his bagot, doesn't matter, the honor. And this is a powerful lesson of what a tov is, a powerful lesson of what being alive is, a powerful lesson of what the human heart should drive us to. May Hashem grant us the wisdom and ability to put this into practice.